coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the football games that happened yesterday, the upcoming impeachment trial, and then have you seen the new Bernie Sanders meme? You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday and welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us. Hope you had a great weekend. Uh, Ian, how was your weekend? I know last we left you, you were coming off a knee surgery. So how are we (laughs) progressing? How is the weekend? And are you drugged up on pain meds right now still? I, I mean, I don't know that I can legally say drugged up on the radio, <laughs> if that's an Ooh, I tried to get you. But yes. yeah, there are, how will I say it? There is pain medication in my bloodstream as we speak. So yes, <laughs> that is having some kind of effect on my capacity or lack thereof to string sentences together. Also, though, it was my, my son Redmond's uh, second birthday on Friday. Awesome. So that was a lot of fun. We've been talking on the show a couple of times about how uh, in this new year, we're being a m- much more diligent about Sabbath. So it was like a Sabbath mm-hmm. birthday. So that was a ton of fun and dinosaur everything, dinosaur cupcakes <laughs> and dinosaur balloons. And now he thinks he's an actual dinosaur, which is hysterical. <laughs> uh, we tried giving my elder son uh, a haircut that did not go well. Started off on a setting that was way too short and um, had to kind of. <laughs> keep powering through there so yeah that's definitely a play a lot of a lot of things happening this weekend was was yours as eventful it was not although we had some good family time went down to the city to see my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law and hung out with some other family members so it was fun and uh yeah i i did have an enjoyable weekend i remember when my kid was young uh he my wife does not let me do this anymore but i think until he was six or seven uh, my son Jackson, who's now thirteen, we would just I would just shave his head. <laughs> it oh, was yeah. just that wasn't my oh yeah. And then all of a sudden there came an age where my wife was like, We're not doing that anymore. We're actually getting him a real haircut. I'm like, Oh, growing up in the world. <laughs> it was it was pretty fun for me, you know, because I'm the oldest of seven kids. So uh Ellen being the only girl and the youngest, she didn't have to endure this. But for a long time, the six of us just marched on down to the basement like like we were soldiers and my dad would just line us up just just shave <laughs> shave all of us so a little yeah a little army of uh of shaved Simpkins boys running around Dearborn, Michigan. That was that was frightening. I'm sure. No, that's awesome. Yeah, one and what you said one time when I had my son in, I I went a little too short, and it was like, uh oh, well, we're fully invested now. Here we right, go. Right, right. And, uh, no reverse there. on this setting. Nope. There we went. And before looking back over the weekend, a couple different things I want to talk about. But did you I'm sure you know this. I must ask, did you know, like you don't know these things. Uh, first major snowstorm of the year. Are you still like I, sometimes I get giddy like a kid, like first snowstorm. We could get up to six to eight inches tonight. Uh, are you excited? Do you, do you like it when the snowstorms are coming? Uh, I always it's a little magical for me, to be honest. It's pretty. I mean, I remember. Gosh, how long ago is this? This must have been like 2007 or eight. We had like a massive, massive mm-hmm. snowpocalypse, you know, and I mm-hmm. went out walking for a few hours, like I, <laughs> just for fun. And every, you know, everything's just shut down. And again, everything's kind of been shut down ish, right. the pandemic anyways. So I wonder if a snowstorm is going to feel different this year. But yeah, I got little, I got little boy. I mean, even if they don't want to go out into it, which is about half the time, like <laughs> them watching it through the window is a treat. So, it's honestly, it's so much fun either way, whether they want to go out and in or not. We have fun. 
that snowpocalypse, by the way, was actually 2010, or at least of the biggest one. The reason I remember, I was at the pastor's conference and my wife had to shovel her driveway. No. That did not go over well. I was like, Yikes. I can't do anything. I'm out of town. Man, I, I was down... Uh, this was a few years ago. We had another pretty big one. We had just bought the house that we're in and my wife was staying with her mom. So I was down in, in Tennessee for a seminary. And when I came back, there was, you know, two feet of snow and no one was at the house. So I didn't have my house keys with me. So, no yeah, I had to speak at a conference the next morning. So I'm trying to break into our new home at like <laughs> midnight. I can't do it. So I have to Uber to a nearby Red Roof Inn and... I stayed there the night, but my bags got lost on the flight or something. So I had to wear the same clothes to teach at this conference the next day. <laughs> Get Ubered back to the church. Oh, it's it not, not great. Not That's great. awesome. That's awesome. Well, hopefully, uh, I, I'm hoping it, it, we get the snow tomorrow. It's funny to listen to my kids because, you know, when we were kids, I know you're homeschooled, but when you weren't, it was like snow day. Maybe we'll get a snow day, but now they're right. just remote right. learning. Or if they're not remote <laughs> learning, they could quickly remote learn. So they're kind of like, uh, I don't know. I think we're just going to have to do it on Zoom, <laughs> even if it's snowing. So yeah. uh, hopefully we'll get that and uh, that'll be fun. So want to look back over the weekend. I don't know about you, but yesterday I spent, I watched every minute of both uh, the NFC and the AFC Championship championship games. Uh, amazingly, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers being led by Tom Brady, who is my age, uh, <laughs> winning the Super, uh, winning the NFC championship game over the Green Bay Packers and the Kansas City Chiefs won convincingly over Buffalo. A, did you watch them? And B, uh, what you think of them? What were the takeaways from the games yesterday? You know, I uh, there was so much fun, like trivia online afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. I I found and posted Tom Brady's first pass of his college football career. I and, saw that. <laughs> uh, as as you know, U of M. I'm actually a U of M fan. Uh, that was an interception. We're thinking like, wow, that's <laughs> he's like so undeniably the goat. Now it's amazing to look back. What you know, what doesn't feel that long ago? You're like, okay, so greatness apparently takes time. Um, but did you know that when Tom Brady played his first Super Bowl, uh, Patrick Mahomes was seven years old. That is an awesome stat. I Man, when I watch Tom Brady, like I said earlier, he is the exact same age as me. We are 43 years old. And I don't know, my favorite commercials right now are those ones where it's an insurance commercial where the guy's trying to teach people not to be their dads. And uh, the one where he t- he goes, okay, now sit down. And the guy sits down with a, oh, and he's like, did you hear it? I'm like, that's how I sit down all the time now. And oh, Tom Brady's oh, the no. same age as me playing NFL football. Uh, it's just wild. There was a really cool moment where after the game, everyone's trying to get to Brady. And he says, can I see my son? And his son comes down out of the stands and they embraced I lost it. That was it right there. I was like, oh, that's so nice. Yeah, his 13-year-old son. Um, one other quick story I want to hit on and get your take on Dominion voting systems that we heard about a lot over the last couple of weeks. Rudy Giuliani often said, you know, that they were what rigged the system. They fixed the election. Uh, they are suing Rudy Giuliani for one point three billion dollars and many other people uh, for what it's done to their reputation and all this. And I was kind of like, good, man, put your money where your mouth is. What is in a minute or so? What's our takeaway there when you read that story of Rudy Giuliani and others who've spoken badly of Dominion of in particular uh, getting sued like this? I don't I mean, this isn't a fair analogy, but, you know, in uh, like pastoral counseling, one of the things that you're you're trained to identify is that if you like if you catch a spouse, by the way, doing something that they're not supposed to be doing, and their immediate response is like how horrible you are for bringing it up or the way that you brought it up or like that's an abusive relationship. You know what I mean? Like the, mm-hmm. 
Like, well, you, yeah, but you're the one though that uh, made the mistakes, though. So it feels like I, I don't know. This feels, <laughs> yeah. I want to say this feels so 2020, but we're we're now fully into 2021. That's right. <laughs> which is discouraging and yet not all that surprising. That's right. So I found this to be an interesting story. If nothing else, words matter, right? Like they've been kind of railing against it. Now they're going to have to put up or shut up. They're going to have to show their cards. Right. Uh, and so that's coming up uh, soon. We'll find out what happens with them. Well, coming up next as we get this Monday show going, uh, I did want to talk about two more things kind of from the world of politics that caught my eye over the weekend. I want to get Ian's take on it next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us again on this Monday as we wait for the snow to come, apparently. So it should be coming tonight. And uh, hopefully hopefully, it's beautiful and easy to shovel. But we are glad you're with us on this Monday. We hope that you had a great weekend. Often what happens here on Mondays, especially early on in the show, Ian, will kind of, Ian and I will kind of look back to some things that caught our eyes over the weekend uh, and just talk about it. And I wanted to ask your opinion on a little bit of a debate that I had with one of my brother-in-laws this weekend, uh, something straight out of the news. Uh, and that is uh, whether or not uh, it, this is we're going to dive right into politics right here and and whether or not uh, you think that there should or shouldn't be an impeachment trial of President Trump. Uh, and this comes out of NBC News. Senate Republicans, Marco Rubio, in fact, said this trial is stupid. Senate Republicans throw cold water on the Trump impeachment. And basically, they're just trying to get out from under it. But a lot of their talk has been he's not president anymore. Can't we just move on? And a lot of the Democrats are saying there has to be um, consequences uh, for what happened and uh, there, someone needs to be held accountable because this was such a huge deal at what happened at the Capitol. Uh, and and this is kind of what's shaping up here in the next couple of weeks. My brother-in-law, and I'll, I'll tell you where uh, you might be surprised where I ended up on it or maybe not. But I'm curious, just your thoughts, just where do you land on whether this should even happen or not? I, honestly, I don't know that I have enough information to formulate a well-articulated response. It is um, It is pretty interesting to think about impeaching a former president and and is that even i think the phrase they use in the article is constitutionally viable like mm-hmm. that i can't again i'm not a history buff by any stretch people listening are like yeah no duh we know but like there's <laughs> added to the list <laughs> how yeah are there even other case studies to compare this to where a former president was was facing the threat of impeachment i don't even i don't even know if that's i the don't case. think so okay yeah i'm a few i'm a few uh uh, credit short of my history ma- uh, master's degree as well, but uh, I don't think mm-hmm. there are. And so this would be unprecedented. The, the debate that my brother-in-law and I got in, it was great. I basically said, I would just love to see the country move on. And he was like, someone needs to be held accountable for this. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right, but I'm, I I would just like to see us go. And it was just kind of like, oh, do we have to go backwards? Uh, but I totally get it. And uh, I, I brought that up because I'm curious where other people are at. And there's no real church angle to this. I'm just curious where other people are at. I did. I want to jump in more so into this other story that I read over the weekend. Deborah Burks, Trump, uh, Trump's COVID-19 coordinator, said she considered quitting during the Trump administration. Uh, I, Anthony Fauci also had some comments this week about how nice it is right now. Uh, but she also was quoted this morning as basically saying, 
she came to figure out that they were using charts that she didn't even know where they came from. And she was put in some weird situations. Uh, mm. And so here's where I want to jump off, Ian, because this is more of a leadership thing or just this. You're working under the president. Uh, and, sure. and we'll make some church, we'll make some church connections about pastors and whatever else, but you're working under the president. Uh, you're working on something super important like the pandemic, but you don't see, uh, well, you don't agree with what's going on. Is the right thing in that to kind of be quiet and keep going and try to be of a help to change it from the inside? Should she have spoken up? Should she have quit? I know you, you're going to say, but I, I can't decide what she should know. What would you have done? What, what would you have done? And then we'll we'll try to take it away from presidents down to like maybe in churches or in businesses. But uh, she was in a very difficult spot. Fauci was in a difficult spot. But what do you think is the right move for you if you had been in that situation? Yeah, I mean, I think if if she's at the position that lives were at risk, then mm-hmm. speaking up has got to happen. Like if you're going to bring this to a church level, you know, there certainly is a time and a place to dissent. Um, that's not typically in front of the whole church at the congregational meeting. You know, we, you and I have probably both been on stages or in chairs when that's happened, when somebody that you're like, man, I, I thought you had my back. What are you doing? You know, there's a, <laughs> yes. But we also know, unfortunately, and we can think of a half a dozen names without even breaking a sweat. There's there, there can be a lot of church manipulation where like, uh, well, loyalty to the boss or loyalty to the, to the King is like, you know, paramount over everything else. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. But those, I mean, are still very, very serious, but often have to do with, you know, money uh, mm-hmm. or culture in a conversation like this. Or if, if you're talking about the possible endangerment of, of lives, I don't know that not speaking up is really even an option, you know, and and if someone wants to make the case like, well, I don't know if I would be listened to or if that would be disrespectful. Like at some point you have to say like, well, okay, if this is a, if this is a health risk, especially for, for an entire country. I, I think if you have information that what's being conveyed is, is inaccurate and, you know, as a result, then potentially really dangerous, you, you, you gotta do something. I, yeah. I, I'm never quite, especially like, it felt like at least at certain points, there were so many, so many people leaving the Trump team so quickly that it was like, Oh man, I don't even know that this would have caused a stir, mm-hmm. you know, that, or quitting maybe doesn't necessarily raise the eyebrows that you're hoping it to cause, but saying something to me seems unavoidable. Yeah. Interesting. If you read the article, she says how she lost friends through this. Uh, people who are like, you know, mm-hmm. you, you're part of the team and, and lost friends. Fauci came out the other day and talked about how the death threats that came to his family and even like some packages that look like it might've wow. been like uh, anthrax or stuff like that turned out to be nothing, but still how scary it was. Uh, so just fascinating. And, and I guess I want to turn this to a more personal level for people. Because, again, yeah, I tend to agree with you. Like, man, why didn't she say something in the moment? But, man, it's we don't even know what that's like when you're with the president or you're in Washington. But maybe there's somebody out there debating right now, like, hey, I'm in a church. I'm in a business where there's just something wrong going on. I can see it, but I don't really want to be that whistleblower. Like, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to. Um, be the cause of dissension. I don't want to lose my job. Like, uh, but I know what's going on in front of me is not right. Uh, how would you counsel somebody in that situation? I know every situation is a little different, but generally speaking, how would you counsel somebody if they came to you and were like, Pastor, I, I really don't know what to do? Yeah, I mean, I think first I would I would want to sympathize. Like I get there's a very small percentage of people who like 
are amped for the fight. Like they're looking for the confrontation and they're excited when it happens. The vast majority of people are like, oh man, I don't want to do this or this isn't, this isn't going to feel good or this is, this might not go well. You know, I think for, you know, Christian leaders in particular, one of the things that I've probably said on the show before, it is hard to speak prophetically to the powers that also cut your paycheck. I get that, you know, if like you're responsible you know, to a church committee and you're like, this thing's going on. But if I say something, it might legitimately mean losing my job. But like, I think of the Martin Luther King Jr. quote, where he says the, the ends we use, no, the means we use must be as pure as the ends we seek or something like that. Like Mm. if we're all about truth and justice and what's right, you know, I'm like, I work for the church. Like we need to trust them. I think, and maybe this is easier said than done. I mean, if, if we believe that that's the, the burden God's laid on our heart, do we think he's not going to care for us if we end up getting fired for standing up for that's what's good. right? Like, well, that's a, that's again with a mortgage and kids and 401k. I get that. that's <laughs> tough. That's tough to do. But like, man, he, there's no price tag on being able to look yourself in the mirror at the end of the night and say, I, I did the right thing. And it might yeah. ultimately end up costing me. Jesus says that doing the right thing will often cost us. Like, he told us in advance. So we shouldn't be surprised, I think, if sometimes we'll come to forks in the road where a choice may not seem all that clear, but like doing what's right. It's always what's that. I think that's another MLK quote. It's always the right time to do what's right. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I just, I, I think that that's true. That's a good word, man. I didn't know if we'd get there through that story and you got us there. So <laughs> <laughs> much appreciated. Well, that's just some stories, politics, sports from this weekend, but coming up next, we're going to talk about the coronavirus and specifically this It's not just you, this article says. Everyone's mental health is suffering. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad that you are here with us. As a reminder, anything you've missed, including the article we're about to discuss, you can find on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, or at Common Good Talk, I should say, also Twitter and Instagram. As uh, all of you know, we're still in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And, uh, you know, the debate is often, should schools be open? Should schools not be open? Should restaurants be open? What are the new numbers about the vaccines and all the stuff? All super important conversations. Uh, But one thing that Ian and I have tried to highlight since way back in March uh, is just uh, the mental health toll that uh, that all of us are facing with this change in life, whether it be change in health or just the loss of the things, whether it be school or sports or church or business, whatever else it might be, just the normalcy. And so with that in mind, uh, there's this article from Wired.com at Wired. It's not it says this. It's not just you. Everyone's mental health is suffering. And it, says, it goes on to say, if you're thinking, oh, I just need to suck it up. It says, stop. What you're feeling is real. Here's how to cope. So, Ian, before we jump into about how you and I and maybe people around us are coping, why don't you let us know what this article is saying? Yeah, it begins, and I appreciate how it starts. It says, this is the first sentence I've written this week. I wrote it on a Thursday. Like many people right now, I'm finding work harder to get done, and even basic daily tasks feel heavier than usual. If that sounds familiar, you're not alone. The pandemic has taken a toll on everyone's mental health, and there's data to prove it. It's going to get into some of the data you know, when we did a series a couple months back on uh, mental health, the doctor that I interviewed, her name is Devona, and she's brilliant. And one of the things she kept coming back to is if if someone is sharing with you, I mean, my talk was specifically about suicidal ideation, but I think it applies to all areas of mental health. If somebody shares with you just as a friend or a family member, uh, one of the best first things you can say is it's normal that you'd feel that way. 
Like that makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. She just kept circling back to that. And I've never forgotten it. Cause I think that's, it's easy to jump right over. Like, well, what can I do to help or what's yeah. contributing to that? Or let's, you know, let's fix that right now. Or what do we need to get out of your life or add to your life? And I think how she starts the article does that in a very, um, dare I say, pastoral way. Like, hey, if you're mm-hmm. reading this and that resonates, it's normal that you're feeling that way. And not just because, you know, me as some blogger is saying it, but because the data actually proves it. Like, you're not alone and it's normal. It's understandable that you'd feel that way. I think that's a really that's a really smart way to kind of frame the conversation. Yeah. And she goes on to say later on, she asks the question, why a pandemic spikes mental health problems? And the article says one of the top reasons uh, for the mental health problems in people of all ages is just the distance we've had to put up between each other. It says we've been asking what troubles them. And remember, they're not all young and they're telling us it's loneliness and isolation, that we need other people. And it might seem, the article says, that isolation isn't quite as bad as some of the other stressors the pandemic can bring, like loss of income, political unrest, disruptive schedules, but it is a crucial one. We need other people. And while Zoom meetings and others are great filler, it's hard. It doesn't go all the way, is basically what it says. You and I have talked about this a million times, but I would sign on to that. Don't you think uh, you know, I don't really want to rank what's causing the most problems, but I would say across the board, it's this sense of isolation is really a big one right now. Yeah, I think part of what's tricky about isolation is it's it's way more difficult to identify. If you have flu-like <laughs> symptoms, you're gonna you're gonna feel it. It's it's discernible, it's diagnosable for the most part. If you break a leg, you're like, oh, uh, that bone is sticking out of my shin. That is broken. Mm. I need help. I need to go get that set right. I think part of what is tricky about a lot of social isolation and things that fit that category is it can be really, really tough to assess just how much it's affecting you. And especially, you know, I have a couple of friends who live by themselves and like, man, there have been times over the last year where it would be a solid three weeks before I even saw another human person. Like, wow, groceries are delivered right to my doorstep, you know, and, and that's a good reminder for me because my kids are three and two and they can certainly be exhausting, but I also get like human interaction with my wife and my kids just within my own home. And I think that isolation has effects that are way more difficult to discern than like a physical broken bone, you know? And I think that's mm-hmm. honestly part of why we did the series we did because we wanted to destigmatize like, you know, no one, no one ever shames anyone else for like getting a cast on a broken bone. Like no one's ever like, Ugh, can't believe, can't believe <laughs> yeah. you punked out, got a cast. But sometimes in some circles, and unfortunately, a lot of them are Christian, like the thought of like getting therapy, seeing a counselor or like weeding through some of those things. Unfortunately, in some circles is like seen as you're not praying hard enough or you must not have enough faith right. or something. There must be some sin in your life. You know, and I think um, it's why I appreciate doing articles like this consistently, because I think it's important that we kind of keep that truth out in front. Like, man, we, we're all struggling in different ways and it's important that we help each other out. Yeah. And this article at, at the end is going to ask uh, what you can do about it. And it's going to point people to go see a doctor or if you, yeah. if you're really in a crisis uh, and she, the, the author says it would be overly simplistic to say, go see a doctor though. If either of these things will help you, also the national suicide prevention line, then by all means do it. Uh, and so that's the big step they're saying, but, but I do think it would be helpful for you and I to talk about if there's people out there, obviously, if you're in crisis and hopefully if you know someone in crisis, you can get them to a therapist, get them to a doctor, get them what they need. But 
you know, for those people who are just struggling, like you said, they haven't seen people or they're just, you know, all of this after 10 months now is just leaving them down or anxious or whatever else it might be. Uh, what are some steps of what people can do practically uh, to make a difference? And maybe what have you been doing that that maybe would has helped you through all of this? Yeah, I can share what what I've been doing. I don't I don't want these to sound in any way prescriptive because some people might need something more intense or more specific and some people maybe less. But like at the surface level, being mindful of screen time, that seems like such a silly thing. Yeah. But like intentionally cutting down on screen time has been remarkably helpful. I've mentioned a lot about having a more consistent Sabbath where we just shut everything off and we're just present and, you know, building around that time as a, as a really important rhythm. Um, also things regarding like meditation and prayer and even breathing, like building in mm -hmm. working on a rule of life that is not legalistic and not restrictive, but like thinks through, you know, what are the rhythms and the typical highs and lows even throughout a regular day or week uh, setting setting aside those really, and they they don't have to be really formulaic, and they don't have to do them in Latin or anything. Like, but just setting aside more consistent time to pray to, like I, you know, I've said on the show, scripture before screens, like that mm -hmm. simple priority. I, and obviously, there'll be days that you know the passage you read, you're like, I don't know what to do with that. Like that, that's totally fine. But <laughs> it was much more about like simple tweaks, and honestly, like diet and exercise. Like those are things that yeah. you know, a lot of us don't have, you know, home gyms or anything. But we can at least be mindful to make some slight tweaks to our diet and be a little more intentional about maybe starting the day with some kind of fitness regimen. I, I don't know. That seems uh, that might seem unhelpfully, you know, worldly to some, but I think all of that's kind of tied. I think our, our physical and our spiritual are interconnected in some pretty important ways. And uh, I, I personally have found that helpful. Yeah. And according to the television, you know, whenever I watch TV, everyone's got a Peloton now. So you can just do that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right, right. I, I think those are great, man. I think one for me that I've realized, especially once it got colder and darker, like grayer outside, was the need to kind of force myself out of my daily like kind of rut. I almost said routine, but I just a rut of like, all right, I'm going to go right. to work. We're going to eat dinner. Then we're just going to sit in front of the TV go to bed, you know, and just this kind of monotony that I think a lot of us feel around COVID to, uh, to force myself to break out of it. Hey, kids, we're going to go do this crazy thing. Why? Just because right, we're going right. to go uh, by crazy thing. I mean, like the other day we got in the car and I just said, hey, let's just go drive to the city and drive around. They're like, where are we going? I'm like, we're not even getting out of the car. <laughs> we're just going to go drive <laughs> around. And it was a blast. You know, we got ice cream and did that. And so sometimes I it has helped me to just add randomness into our schedule that feels so monotonous sometimes. Uh, and so that's been helpful and hopefully uh, that'll be helpful for you. Well, that article is up at our Facebook page and Twitter and Instagram at common good talk. Well, coming up next, if you follow Ian Simpkins on any social media, there is a new phenomenon that he is at the forefront of, and we're going to discuss next here on the common good AM 1160 hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this Monday afternoon. Hopefully you are uh, got the shovel ready, the snowblower ready for the snow, hopefully coming tonight. It'll be fun to get our first big snowstorm of the year. Or like happens with Chicago weather, it's just going to miss us and we're going to get nothing. But we <laughs> shall see. <laughs> feels like that happens all the time. But It feels like every uh, report I'm reading right now is like, brace yourself for 875 to zero inches of snow. And you're like, oh, <laughs> exactly. Pretty it wide be anywhere. 
It could be anywhere from a dusting to you will not be able to open your door. Right, exactly. <laughs> Every time. I, it doesn't even doesn't even show up on my radar anymore. Exactly. So we shall see. But that is in the forecast for tonight. Well, if you've been on Facebook and Twitter at all since, uh, oh, it would have been Inauguration Day. So since last Wednesday, uh, you would see that even probably more than seeing stuff about the inauguration or anything, you have seen the Bernie Sanders meme of him uh, sitting in a chair with mittens on, <laughs> kind of cross-armed by himself. I do. In, I did last, <laughs> yeah, totally cross-armed. Last Wednesday, when I saw the picture for the first time before it became everybody's meme, I was like, my first thought was, oh, that's going to be an awesome meme. <laughs> like, oh, that's no gonna be. <laughs> I just had that thought like, oh, this is going to be funny. Uh, but it has gone viral. Like, I'm not sure. Maybe you would know. Maybe you would remember. I can't think of a one meme going this crazy uh, across Facebook and Twitter uh, and Instagram. And people are getting really creative with it. I joked before the break that you were at the forefront out of it. Probably the wrong. T- probably the wrong. Uh, you didn't take the picture or make the no. meme. No, uh, no, no. But what I meant to say is you've been posting a lot of it, <laughs> a lot of yeah. the memes. And uh, I guess I, I, I'm wondering, what do we learn? What do we why is this gone viral? And have you been surprised to see how viral like I can't still now almost, you know, five days later, I can't turn on uh, Facebook or Twitter uh, without uh, seeing more of them. And quite frankly, they're getting funnier and funnier and funnier. <laughs> uh, and you've done some very funny ones. I'll give you that. Oh, but you. like, why? Why? Usually these last a day. What is it about this one that's gone just crazy? First off, I think trying to understand virality is a losing <laughs> battle. I, I've I mean, I've le- I've legitimately read articles on this, too, because if you think Have about you really? the in- Oh, yeah. The inception of YouTube there. Are, I mean, I'm sure you could think of a few yourself. There are videos that got a billion views and you watch it and you're like, Really? This? Why? Why this? Other yes. times it's not, you know, it's like, oh, that's really obvious. This is a really talented songwriter or this is a really wonderful act of generosity. Like there certainly are ones that seem obvious, but there's for every obvious one, there's 400 that are like, why? Why this singing potato? Like, I don't understand why, that's, <laughs> yeah. why that. So I don't really know that there is a way to understand. It. Although, if you remember uh, Jimmy Fallon years ago, he didn't reveal till after the fact there was a video that went viral. And then a month after it went viral, he revealed on his show that they had created the video and they showed the oh, rest no. of them recording it, that it was actually like in a studio that they built or something and was explaining about how things going viral aren't actually that tough to do. They like released the original video under someone else's account or something like that. It was a really wow. interesting kind of case study. on like, nah, thing, things, it's not that hard for things to go viral. Uh, I would maybe dis- dis- disagree with that a little bit. I think part of what's, so enjoyable about the Bernie one is it it's just it's kind of non-controversial like it's just sort of right oh who who can't get on board to some degree and there have certainly been controversial spins on it but like some of the ones that have been my favorite you know, there's, a, a, there's a Gangnam Style one there's one <laughs> where Cracker Barrel had had printed off a picture of it and like hung it in their physical store there's one where where Bob Ross is is painting a happy little Bernie, you know, like by a mountain. Like there's just some really, I did, I made one where he was at me at the, you know, with me at the hospital after my knee surgery and, uh, or when my, the hammock collapsed underneath me and that one yes. message from a couple years ago. So like, 
I've seen a, I've seen a bunch a bunch of churches kind of try to capitalize on it, but I think it's it's interesting because it is kind of just a like a warm fuzzy feeling, and the fact that Bernie is taking that and then you know raising funds for uh, for a charity to me is like the added feel good cherry on top of it. Like oh, there it's not just aimless internet being the internet, but it's actually hopefully going to contribute some good in the world. I think people feel yeah. good about that. Yeah, as Ian talks about that there, uh, Bernie Sanders took it and he made sweatshirts and they immediately sold out, not surprisingly, and he's donating all the money uh, from it. I learned two things from it. One, I don't know how to make a meme, so I'm very impressed of all of these people who are able to this. That's the oldest thing I will have said all day. Like, I don't know how to make these memes. Uh <laughs> But, but yeah, that's one thing memes. I realized. Memes. Uh, well, I think one of my favorite ones, first of all, before it went viral, I, one of the first that I saw online at Inauguration Day was somebody saying Bernie Sanders looks like every looks like he just uh, somebody told him, hey, you have to stop at the inauguration on your way to go out to get milk. <laughs> he just stopped there. I did like one of the first ones I saw, too. You remember that famous picture, like maybe in New York City of construction workers sitting way up high on a, like a crane or like on a mm-hmm. on a yep. beam on like about it. They put him in the middle of it. You're like, it actually fits right there uh so anyway those uh those were funny no no hard-hitting news there but just if you haven't seen them i don't hey, i don't know where you've been but just there is something to the the question of what goes viral because this has gone more than i've ever seen i'm sure bernie sanders is laughing about it going yeah this is uh what i'm going to be known for is pretty crazy second thing and then we're going to close out our hour here uh, sold in your home state of Lansing, Michigan. One lucky player in Michigan bought the $1.05 billion Mega Millions ticket for the drawing held on January 22nd. And nobody knows who it is yet. Right. Uh, but they, uh, the lottery people, public relations team said, we're just glad it was someone in Michigan. Uh, they bought it at a Kroger. Uh, in in uh, maybe you would know where this is in Novi, Michigan. So mm-hmm. uh, wondering, A, can you even get yourself your mind around one billion dollars? And in all seriousness, if you were to win something, you'd only <laughs> walk away with like half a billion after taxes. But uh, if you were to win something, uh, what are some things you would do with money like that? Well, yeah, it looks like they'd walk away with seven hundred and seventy six point six million. Ooh, more than I thought. Wow. That's more than half. Uh, Novi, by the way, N-O-V-I is uh, because it stands for number six on the uh, on the train number and then V-I Roman numeral six. Uh, that's where the city name came from. That's it. That's where Novi wow. comes from. Yes, sir. My, my so friends, what you get for having a co-host from Michigan, <laughs> from Michigan, that's what completely you get. useless knowledge like that. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I never know what to do with these questions. To be honest, like it's there. It's the older I get, the more boring my uh, my answers get. Like ah, pay off <laughs> debt, buy a car for for my brothers in a house from my parents i don't i don't i don't have cool answers anymore i used to used to feel like i had a capacity to think up cool things it would be i mean it's really cool even looking at this it's kind of a cheat sheet article where it talks about even the store that um that sold the ticket gets a fifty thousand dollar bonus commission i didn't know that that's that's pretty amazing it would be that'd be i mean how fun would it be this is gonna sound like such a lame churchy answer but like how fun would it be to tithe that to your local church (laughs) Yes, that'd be so fun. That'd be so cool. Like, I just, I could just build a bunch of hospitals, you know, overseas somewhere. Yeah. I could like uh, pay for kids' college tuition. I don't know. 
I don't want for much, man. If it just feels, and honestly, a little selfishly, it'd be cool just to be able to do some of that stuff and not have to even bat an eye. Like, how much do you need? Four hundred grand. There you go. It's yours. Like that. There you go. That would just be fun. so much fun. And I think there's there's something to that. I do think because I would have said the same thing. Like, of course, I would you know go on an awesome vacation or maybe do something you know do something for for me and my family. But at some level, I think the most fun thing to do would be to. Uh, to cr- in a crazy way bless other people and do good with right. it. I think it would be, uh, and you start to you know to make pastor links here. You start to realize the stuff the Bible says about money when you think about and you put it on such a huge thing and you go, oh wait, actually in my mind, blessing other people and doing really cool things with it would be probably the most fun. Yeah. Uh, and so anyway, I, I I would love that problem sometime to have to figure out how to. Could you imagine you wake up one day and you're like, wait. I think that's my ticket. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering if, if no one's even noticed yet, if that's why some, could no one's you imagine? Oh, boy. Could you imagine? So we'd love to know what you would do. We got these up on our Facebook page uh, and Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. Well, that was not hard hitting, but coming up next, we are going to dive into the deep end. We're going to read the latest post from our old friend David, uh, David French coming up next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss the latest blog post from David French and then how to pray when you don't know what to say. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. I am Brian Fromm. Thank you for being with us tonight. Well, Ian, one of the people that we discuss a lot, dare I say a friend of the show, he has been on the show before, but he's also been in the news a lot. Uh, as of late, uh, just with his writings and such. And that is David French. Uh, and David French writes at French Press. Uh, again, we always have to point out, it's like we're contractually obligated to say it's the, your favorite name of a blog mm-hmm. uh, at French Press. And David French, I don't, uh, he writes pretty much on a weekly basis. And he wrote this week, and uh, like we said earlier, going to dive into the deep end here. He wrote this, an important apology shows the path past Christian Trumpism, leaving behind the days when strength was weakness and courage was cowardice. I'm going to ask you to get us into this David French blog post. I would love to. It says on January 15th, Hunter Baker, the Dean of Arts and Sciences at Union University, a Baptist college not far from me in Jackson, Tennessee, did something exceedingly rare in our highly polarized time. He published an apology. In an essay in Public Discourse, he forthrightly declared that he uh, severely underestimated the threat posed by a Donald Trump presidency. He acknowledged that the never-Trumpers were correct, that there were significant risks involved with Donald Trump that could very well outweigh the policy outcomes. I'll stop there before we get too much into the weeds. Do you, do you find that, um, what does he call it, polarized? He calls it exceedingly rare in our polarized time. Is this something that uh, you would agree is uh, exceedingly rare in your from your vantage point. I do. I especially it's rare to see a public apology. I think some people have come out of this election and you know everything at the Capitol and everything and and they're going ah I'm not sure I got that right or I have some regrets on both sides of the aisle. But especially in my life at least, a lot of the people uh, who backed President Trump and but but to not only apologize or not even apologize but to just admit wrong but to publicly do it i especially in this time that we're living in yeah i i think that's exceedingly rare yeah french goes on he says in our present environment it takes guts to write an apology it's countercultural within our broader society it's even 
more countercultural within the MAGA community. As my colleague Jonah Goldberg noted on Friday, even after the calamity of January 6th, most MAGA voices are busy doubling down, demanding continued loyalty to Trump and seeking punitive actions against the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach. Baker was the brave exception, and the correct response to Baker's words is simple. Thank you. Apology accepted. I'll stop there again. Um, <laughs> do you find that that often has been the response from the masses when someone issues some kind of public apology? Uh no, especially a public person. <laughs> I, I wish it was. I don't feel like we're a very grace filled, especially around politics and especially around Donald Trump right now. I don't feel on either side. I don't feel like we're very graceful people uh, in general as a culture. Obviously, individually. Yeah, we are. Uh, but yeah, I don't think there's a lot of apology accepted going on out there. There probably is. Hopefully where that's happening is within families, you know, where. Uh, you know, where brother was pitted against sister over the election or where uh, in businesses or whatever. But I don't see a lot of that publicly. How about am I just looking in the wrong spots? What are you seeing out there? Yeah, I see nothing but puppy dogs and rainbows. Man. I don't know what, what <laughs> I'm just going to follow your people. <laughs> yeah, my goodness. I'm I'd be curious to know what you see instead. Like if it's not thank you, apology accepted. What do you what do you tend to see as responses, particularly to public people issuing some kind of an apology? The responses I've seen, especially to public people and especially to public people who have distanced themselves or pointed out something wrong about, uh, especially in following President Trump. Sure. Uh, I've seen a lot of what took you so long. You were part of the problem. How could you not have seen this uh, earlier? Okay. How okay. where I can't believe you didn't see this three years ago, as opposed to. Hey, yeah, I'm, I, I know we argued a lot, but I'm glad that you got to this point. Uh, I've seen a lot of like, oh, you think an apology is going to wipe this away? Uh-uh, I'm not letting you off that easy is kind of the feel I've gotten. OK, so that's interesting. So it's not necessarily that you see an attack from people who maybe he otherwise would have identified with. You're saying it's more. On I think the there's side. that, too. <laughs> OK, but you're saying yeah. it's more predominantly the people he's apologizing to not being gracious and receiving it rather than people who maybe a year or two ago would be considered his, his people, his tribe being upset that he somehow has like switched teams. Yeah. I think that that, I think that that uh, fire comes from both sides is what I've seen. And this is probably why a lot, not a ton of people are apologizing. Yeah. Right. Uh, because when this guy apologized, I'm sure he took it from both sides, like just getting, you know, fire from both ends going, Hey, uh, you know, where were you before or why are you jumping off now that we lost an election? You're jumping off the team. And so, yeah, I don't think. But, yeah, I have quite frankly, on my Facebook and Twitter feeds, I've seen a lot of uh, people not accepting apologies going, oh, you know, where were you before? You could have made a difference before uh, you were part of the problem. So I've seen it more on that end. It's something that I, I think I posted um, after George Floyd, maybe, maybe, maybe it was a month or two after that. I said something like, let's normalize celebrating when someone changes their mind when presented with new information. Mm -hmm. And that is tricky, obviously, because there's emotions involved in that. So if you feel like, oh, this person wasn't presented with new information, they've been brainwashed with bad information. And now they're on this team or now they're on that side or now they were saying this and now they're saying that, which is why I think people often say the things that they say. It's obviously not. It'd be a totally different story if we all agreed what were facts and what weren't, mm -hmm. or if mm -hmm. things were even always that cut and dry. It is interesting, though. You talk about 
grace-filled, grace-centered. Is there any environment? Uh, I don't want to. I'm not setting you up to trick you or anything. But is there an environment where, like, I give it to you all the time? <laughs> yep, that's fair. Where, like, no, nah, actually, the more gracious thing here is to not accept your apology or to not to to not continue to be in relationship with you. Like, take it out of the sphere of like a public person. Are there? I mean, I kind of answer for you, I guess. Are there like abusive situations where you're like, nope, so like I can forgive you, but we don't need to be in a relationship anymore. And that's, oh, not sure. me be, that's not me being ungracious. That's actually me making the, the right decision. Like, is there other other environments like that that you think of? Uh, I just think that it, we've probably said this from pulpits before, right? Forgiveness doesn't always take doesn't have to take away consequences and forgiveness right. doesn't wipe everything clean. And I think that's fair in this. If there was hurt, you know, I think a lot of people over the last election cycle hurt people that they loved by how passionately yeah. they talked about the other side or what they said about, you know, uh, the, the liberals or the Trump people, you know, on both sides. And so, no, I absolutely think that there are times where you could go, hey, uh, I can forgive you. You know, the Bible teaches me to forgive you. It doesn't mean I have to be in relationship with you. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to the actions. Uh, yeah, I think that's totally fair. So do you think that people perhaps feel that way, even if it's not someone that they know? And they're like, no, sorry, apology not accepted because... Your rhetoric or the positions that you have held in the past had very real consequences. And so for you to make a post online, no, I don't I don't accept that now. Do you does that can you conceive of a, a world where someone might feel that way? Yeah, but I, I in that sense that you just set up, I don't find helpful. I could see somebody what I would like to see somebody if they're like, you know what, I don't want to let you off the hook. I could see them, especially if they're in relationships, saying, hey, OK, but I want to see that your actions match what you're saying now going forward. So I'm going to be a little skeptical, uh, but, you know, we're, I, I want to see that you meant what you said. And um, as opposed to I hope we're just not going to get to the point where it's like, nope, you voted for him. I'm never dealing with you again. And and obviously there are situations, like I said, families, whatever, where it was close. Uh, but hopefully we can get to a point as a culture where we're willing to show each other some grace, like you said, say, Okay, we learned from this on whatever side and and we could come together and have conversation about it. Hopefully I could see skepticism, but hopefully skepticism just doesn't lead to canceling. Ah, that's well said. I like that. Hopefully skepticism doesn't lead to canceling. That's good. That's a good note to end on. Thank you. Thank you. And that's as is often the case with David French. You and I, we often get about a third of the way through the blog. <laughs> and that was the right. case again. So I would encourage people to go uh, read it for themselves at our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, speaking of friends of the show, coming up next uh, from Ed Stetzer's blog, we're going to talk about moral failings of Christian leaders. And what do we do in those situations? That's coming up next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. I am Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Monday. We were talking last segment about David French, called him a friend of the show. A legitimate friend of the show as well is Ed Stetzer. He's been on the show uh, three or four times. And as we said when we had him on, Ed, there aren't many people who we quote more in their articles than you. And so with that in mind, at his blog, edstetzer.com, uh, he wrote on moral failings of Christian leaders. Let me dive us into this because this is a topic you and I have discussed. We're both pastors, and this is a topic that we have discussed so many times about how do you deal with the moral failings of Christian leaders? Why is it happening? What's the way forward? So this is where Ed, who has given this a lot of thought, goes out. He says, the past few months, and if we're honest, the past few years 
have been hard for Christians and evangelicals in particular. I've felt it myself as I've had to deal with some good friends who confess to moral failures and the aftermath that has occurred in their wake. It's certainly been much harder on those directly hurt, and but it's impacted many of us. My love for Christ and his church and the calling he has given all of us, not just leaders, to represent him well and live lives of integrity has pushed me into places of grief as of late. I recall a conference where I spoke several years ago of the eight speakers listed. About half of the speakers have now stepped down from the churches they were serving due to some personal issue. That's not right, but it is real and it requires some self-reflection. Let's pause. There's a lot there. But Ian, you and I, like we said, are both pastors. Uh, and we've talked a lot on this radio show of exactly what Ed's talking about. It feels like in the past months or years that, that, there have been so many Christian leaders, pastors, ministry leaders, whoever else who have, quote unquote, fallen. Uh, and Ed talks about feeling grief over it. And uh, I'm wondering, I think that's a good way to put it. How, how do you feel? Uh, is grief a good way to put it as you kind of look at the landscape over the last months and years? Yeah, I think grief is a good way to put it, but I, I'd want to expand it. I feel like, unfortunately, often the grief is reserved for the person who had previously been on the stage and we have grief mm. that either they did something or are experiencing something or have had to step away. And often the subtext is, and now are no longer doing the thing that I feel like I got a lot of benefit from, you know, um, especially in cases where family has been affected in it. And again, it, we've seen all sorts of people use the word fall, you know, there it, it's, mm-hmm. it's not always, some grandiose fall. Sometimes it's like an egregious sin and they're caught in an extramarital affair or there's massive amounts of money missing or drugs or abuse or culture stuff. But sometimes it's like, mm, I've, I've been burning myself out for a long time. And because yeah. I'm kind of a type a with a, with a deep tank, I've probably gone longer than I should have. And I, I, I feel like I need to step away. That's a different kind of grief because yeah, by and large, you hope that it wouldn't get to that point. I think the moment, though, if you if you're already starting to feel burnt out, you're a little bit behind the eight ball. Like, yeah, that's a good point. This is why like rhythms and spiritual practices are so important because we we often treat we treat them like they're solutions to burnout. And you're like, no, nah, they're they're things to be built into place that help prevent us from getting to the edge of that cliff in the first place. So yeah, it's totally grief. And you and I have shared a lot on the show about the grief of seeing you know men and women that we admire either removed or have to step down. I just feel like we need to be careful not to say, oh, I have grief because that one person had to step down because of yeah. one, they were a great preacher or two, like they did so much for that church or community or me personally. When in reality, there's usually like a spouse and or kids and or community that are also like involved that sometimes I don't necessarily know get um, an adequate portion of our grief. Yeah. Let me uh, read this line. Uh, just a one sentence or two sentences. It's that's right here. I, I, I'll prep you. I want to know, do you agree or disagree with what he's what he says here and why or why not? He's Ed writes, Christ is purifying his church and it hurts and there is more to go. What do you think mm-hmm. about that statement Ed makes there? You know, I only say this because I've, I follow Ed and I've seen other stuff that he's been posting. And Kerry uh, Newhoff has been saying a lot of the same things that, you know, a lot of pastors in 2021 are just going to step down, not because of any kind of failing. I don't think um, I think there's a lot of other factors. I think COVID's been really, really tough That's right. on everybody. And uh, leaders are not exempt from that. Um, the purifying part, 
I think he's I think he's right. And here's part of why I think that is. I think a lot of times, like with the big celebrity failings that we've seen, mm-hmm. it feels like so often in hindsight, what like what they were going after was the crowd, you know, and they sort of couched right. it as a you know, in the language of church and ministry. Well, we don't have a lot of crowds right now. And I feel like mm. if you were someone, man, and God help you, if you went into ministry for like the crowd size or the yeah. applause of the audience, like, shoof. but if that's true and it feels like the longer I'm in ministry, the more real that is and the more common it seems. And you're not getting that dopamine rush right now. You're not getting right. the accolades that you had been used to for so long. Like, all right, well, I got to go, I got to go get that high somewhere else. Then I got to go find, you know what I mean? Like, I think there's uh that's a pretty, that's a pretty easy ratio to follow. They're like, oh man, that might lead to other dangerous places. If, if ultimately their like sustenance and viability was rooted in something that is vapor anyway. And uh, I think, yeah, I think that, I think that Ed's instinct, it might be right here. Do you, do you have a sense about it? I think you're right. I think that there are more painful times to come. I think, uh, what you were just saying, it made me think of the Carl Lentz story that we did a couple yeah, times right. and where the, the woman that he had the affair with, she lit- she wasn't a churchgoer. And she literally said when he lost his stage, he was lost because of COVID. Mm. Like when he didn't have mm. it, it's exactly what you were just saying. He needed to go get that from somewhere else. And you might be thinking if you're a pastor out there, well, I don't have this problem. I don't have a big church. I, I minister in a small to medium sized church. It's not about the number of people. It's about where you get your affirmation, right? You walk off that stage and that you're all you're looking for is that one person to pat you on the back and be like, great job. That was the best, right? That was great. Uh, and again, there's nothing wrong with encouragement, but I think as Ian said, when that's what drives you, uh, when yeah. that is what what is like what you crave, that's a dangerous spot to be. And Ed ends with this. Uh, I'm going to read his thing. He said, let me share a few thoughts I've had during this season as we all sit with disappointment for sake of time. Let me read these three and you grab whichever one uh, most you want to explore or you want to talk about. He says, first, pastors and leaders at any level in the church must always be held to the highest level of integrity and purity. Yes. Second. Pastors and leaders are just like anyone else, sinners in need of daily renewal of the Holy Spirit. And mm-hmm. third, painful times open up important conversations. Those all require their own segment, but I'm going to give you a minute for one of them. Why don't you jump in on one of those? Oh, gosh. You're right. They do all deserve their own segment. And the, I mean, the middle one is the one that's always so funny to me that people are like, oh, man. Pastors are just like real people. Like maybe I'm not rolling with enough Hollywood types, but I'm always like, yeah, isn't that obvious? Like, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think we seem in any way different. And maybe our jobs are a little weird, but uh, yeah, I guess I'll just stick with that first one because I think it's so important, especially in light of the stories that you and I have unfortunately had to do over the last two years. That's Pastors right. and leaders, leaders of, and I think that's so smart. At any level, must be held to the highest levels of integrity. And purity, that sounds like accountability, right? And I think yes. what's what's so frustrating is that like one on one type stuff. And then yet for whatever reason, if someone seems like they're our, our ticket to something greater or the the goods they bring are are worth more than the accountability we offer, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we get so easily tricked into like letting our our guard down on that one. And I think part of it has to come from man. You can have all the boards and checks and balances and systems in place. But if you yourself aren't willing to be held accountable, you'll find a way to manipulate out of it. And I think it's it's as much a charge to churches and communities mm-hmm. 
as it is to the individuals themselves, because I just think I think it's paramount. Absolutely. Ed ends this way. Discouraging times can lead to intentional change. That's my hope. Our hope lives on because God is at work taking the ashes and making something beautiful, Lord willing, in all of us. And then I love these last two words he ends with, me included. (laughs) So that's from our friend of the show, Ed Stetzer. It's up at our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next uh, from The Guardian, why your most important relationship is with your inner voice. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. And uh, we are glad to be together for yet another show here on this Monday afternoon. And if you've been with our show for any amount of time over the past years, I think we've probably done this, probably, what would you guess, the last four months where you've done holidays for us? And I've said, oh, that's my favorite part of the show now. (laughs) So... Yeah, uh, I have no sense of time or space. I could have been doing this for either the last seven minutes or the last 12 years. I don't even, <laughs> I so have true. no idea, no clue. It's so true, but we're going to do it right now. So why don't you tell us what are the holidays of today? Well, first, it is Revolution Day in Egypt. So that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, what are you drinking over there? What's going on? <laughs> A nice tea, thank you. But I gave you a uh-huh. sure. What did you What did you think I was drinking? Uh, it's always a nice I just tea from I just assumed it was straight vodka. Yeah, based based on <laughs> based on the show based That's on the show so show. far. Yeah, uh, it's Tatiana Day in Ukraine. I'm not no sure idea what, that, what means. that means, but happy Tatiana it's Day. Burns Night in the UK. Okay. None of those were the fun ones. Are you ready for the fun Bernie ones? Sanders. Yes, yes. No, no, no. With a U, but yeah, might as well be. Uh, it's opposite <laughs> day, or is it? Mm. Uh, how do you ever know yeah you can't ever know that is it's national opposite irish day. coffee day oh Hold sorry on, we go back opposite sure. day is actually a thing because as a kid you're always like opposite day <laughs> i didn't know that opposite day was an actual thing oh yeah banks are closed on opposite day that's not true opposite day <laughs> bingo bango you're a quick learner uh it is national irish coffee day i don't know if you can admit on air whether or not you are a fan but i'll just assume yes um i think you know no i think you know <laughs> it's a national bubble wrap appreciation day no way is like it's just the same as saying my mom's birthday she loves bubble wrap so much it your is, mom does oh yes 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 if anyone That's wants to send awesome. my mom some bubble wrap she would be i mean there are probably things she would like more but uh she she wouldn't be wouldn't be sad. Uh, all right. And it is a state day. And how do I give you a clue without giving it away entirely? This was back when we did interweb insanity. This was the state responsible for the vast majority of them. Happy Florida day. Happy Florida day. <laughs> there you go. Florida man. Yep. Florida man. Anything that starts with Florida man, you know that you're in for it. So that's right. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, happy Florida day. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Something Thanks, crazy is going to happen. That <laughs> I'll send my cards in the mail. Oh, that's fun. Anyway, at uh, we we that article here from the Guardian, and when we uh, we we do you, we always call you Mister Brain Science. So here's here's one of your brain science, kind of how do our minds work? And this was an interesting headline. You posted up this article, and this headline kind of was like, okay, I want to read this. It says, "Why your most important relationship is with your inner voice." Your internal monologue shapes mental well-being, says psychologist Ethan Cross. He has the tools to improve your mind's back chat. So this is a super important one. Why don't you get us into this article from The Guardian? 
I feel like you really specifically tried to distance yourself from this article because the headline was so controversial. Like, I want everyone to know Ian chose this one. Is this a is this a controversial headline? Well, I think for I mean for Christ followers, would they would people assume that your most important relationship is your inner voice? That could be that Good could be point. potentially okay. controversial in some Christian circles, don't you think? Okay. Yeah, I think you're right. I would at least say an important relationship, but yeah, okay. Ah, I mean, let's just say, just cards on the table, we think the most important is Jesus. So that said, (laughs) let's get into this article from Rachel Cook. Begins by saying, as Ethan Cross, an American experimental psychologist and neuroscientist, will cheerfully testify, the person who doesn't sometimes find themselves listening to an unhelpful voice in their head probably doesn't exist. Ten years ago, Cross found himself sitting up late at night with the baseball bat in his hand, waiting for an imaginary assailant he was convinced was about to break into his house, a figure conjured up by his frantic mind after he received a threatening letter from a stranger who'd seen him on TV. I would say that's a justified anxiety. (laughs) That is yikes. Cross, whose area of research is the science of introspection. Ah, I'm so interested already. That's so cool. (laughs) Knew that he was overreacting, uh, that he had fallen victim to what he calls chatter, but telling himself, uh, telling himself this did no good at all. At the peak of his anxiety, his negative thoughts running wildly on a loop, he found himself somewhat comically Googling bodyguards for academics. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, though. It, as someone, so you, you get up in front and speak in front of people, and that, yes. I, as best I can tell, is still the number one fear among adults. Um, have you ever had an experience like that where you like your heart rate was going a million miles a minute and you tried – like speaking your body into a calm and your body's like, we're not listening to you anymore, brain. We are, we are doing what we want to do. And you're like, wow, why can't I not get this under wraps? Yeah. I've never been threatened in the way he is, but uh, you're going to learn something about me. Anytime I'm like alone at night in a house, not really my own house, but any other house, I freak out the way he was describing here and I can't talk myself out of it. I do, man. Like I sometimes like, I don't know where it comes from, but I remember from a very young age through even now, like if you're like, oh, you can go stay at this cabin by yourself out in the woods. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, not a chance in the world. (laughs) (laughs) See, I love that stuff. I love I would love to stay in a cabin in the woods. Mm. Yeah, no, no, it doesn't do it for me. But yeah, you're right. Like sometimes your mind just gets going and you just create these whole narratives and these whole stories and then they just kind of take hold and you can't. Uh, you can't kind of bring them back. And uh, yeah, this is interesting. Although I would say when, if you actually got a threatening letter, I'm not sure that that's overreacting. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Well, th- I think that's part of how some of that chatter works, though, is you convince yourself that it actually is legitimate that you feel that way, whether it is or not. You know, and I think this is something that I think is interesting because um It's not a lot. Well, let me just read some of this because I think this is super fascinating. According to one study, we talk to ourselves at a rate equivalent to speaking 4,000 words per minute by way of comparison. The American president's State of the Union address, which usually runs about 6,000 words, lasts more than an hour. No wonder Mm. then that listening to it can be exhausting, whether it takes the form of a rambling soliloquy or a compulsive rehashing of events, a free associative pinballing from one thought to another or a furious internal dialogue. So that finding right there i've never read that if that's true and i have no idea how you even measure this we talk to ourselves at a rate equivalent to speaking four thousand words per minute that even if it isn't like the article began you know up late at night with a baseball bat it it runs the risk of being exhausting anyway whether the thoughts are positive negative or neutral 
And that to me is a whole, that's a whole other interesting Pandora's box because we don't, I, I don't know. Do you have a lot of conversations about your inner monologue and like no. the words that you say to yourself? I, I don't either, but I think there's, there's aspects of this that are part and parcel to like why the apostle Paul is often talking about like why it's so important to take every thought captive, mm. set your mind on such things. It's because without, you know, our mind can like, there's a graphic even of the article of like a person's body and then just scribbling where like the head <laughs> should be. And I'm like, yeah, I've totally felt that way. Like, that's why I think therapy can be really helpful. They help you kind of untangle the ball of yarn that's going on in your head. And I think, yeah, I just think there's a lot that's super interesting in this article. Yeah, and it starts to help you understand why once you start going down a bad path, whatever it might be, how you just start convincing, you know, you, you end up like uh, uh, thinking it's so much worse than it was like, uh, you know, right. a, a speech I have to give tomorrow or a relationship that's struggling, whatever else. And your mind just starts to go crazy. And I would encourage people to look at it because where it's going to go here is this guy is going to give us uh, some techniques about how to uh, how to kind of control or uh, not just go crazy from this chatter, such as uh, the power of touch, the power of nature and other activities. So, I mean, it's fascinating. You you choose really long articles, but it's, uh, <laughs> it is uh, it, it is really helpful because especially even in a pandemic and with all of this stuff, uh, we can just this chatter could be debilitating. And he's going to go on to talk about how some of us, it's not just neutral chatter. It's also like destructive, self-sabotaging. Uh, and what hmm. do you do when your inner monologue is self-sabotaging uh, and it takes you to bad places? I think that's really important. And we can over-spiritualize this and be like, oh, the Christian doesn't struggle with this. I think we all do. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. so it becomes important to have this conversation. We're going to end the show next out of Outreach Magazine, How to Pray When You Don't Know What to Say. That article from Priscilla Shire is coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. Glad to have you join us here on this Monday afternoon. As uh, especially during this time of COVID, Ian and I have tried to end each show with whether it be some inspiration, some good news, just something to leave us thinking uh, as we go. And with that in mind, we saw this article up at Outreach Magazine by Priscilla Shire, and I'm just going to read some of it. It says this, how to pray when you don't know what to say. And as a pastor, not only do I feel this sometimes, but Manny, and I'm sure you feel this way too. We get this question all the time when we talk about prayer. Like, well, I don't, I don't really know what to say. Uh, you know, what should I do? And it says, uh, so Priscilla Shire's writing to this. Let me just get us, uh, into this. She says, every serious believer longs to summon up the kind of boldness and faith that can stand firm on Mount Carmel and pray down heaven into impossible situations. Yet few are willing to go through the process required to get there. Strength of faith, character, and boldness can only be shaped in the hidden fires of silence, sameness, solitude, and adversity. Those who patiently wait on God in the darkness emerge with their holy, holy loyalty cemented, their courage emblazoned, and their confident belief in him set afire. So Mount Carmel there, Ian, a lot of talk there about setting ablaze and strength of faith. And she says it's shaped by the hidden fires of silence, sameness, solitude, and adversity. What do you think about how Priscilla Shire starts this? What do you think about what she says there? Okay, first off, I can't believe she didn't change adversity to suffering. You got th- you got three S's beforehand there, <laughs> and then you're going to go with adversity. 
as a pastor, I just, I'm, oh, it hurts you to the core. Shock, shocked and awed. Yeah. You'll have to ask John Ferguson about this later in the week because he's like the king. He's the king of the acronyms and the acrostics. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. That's but awesome. I think it's, I think it's a really helpful way. I don't think people talk enough about silence in solitude in prayer it feels like adversity or suffering that almost is a natural instinct even for like non-praying type people like there is um i don't don't you find that people often are more inclined to pray when they're going through something tough like it's yes even if they don't know who they're praying to or how to do it it's it could be anything from i got a big test coming up to my family's unraveling like i'll give this a shot but silence though in particular i'm amazed at how like if if we had conversations with our friends the way that we have conversations with God, none of them would be our friends anymore. Like we, we just show up, do all the talking and then we bail. And I, I don't know. I'm guilty of this, by the way. I'm not saying, I'm not saying any of this is someone who's like figured it out, but I have also realized how tough silence actually is. I, I read uh, rich Velotis's deeply formed life a couple of weeks ago and he, he talks a good deal about it and how, how fruitful it is, but how challenging it is just to, just to be quiet, to find space, you know, and in the same way, solitude, like we think because we're in a pandemic that we're good at solitude, but we're not though. And and that's what drives a lot of us. It's probably why right. you saw me post 47 Bernie means it's like, wow, Ian's just <laughs> like tossing out nanocrafts, trying to connect with somebody, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's other things we do because we don't know what to do with our aloneness. And I think there, yeah, there's something about, silence and solitude that I think can really uh, give root to our, our prayer life in a way that nothing else does. Yeah. So she goes on to say, you don't have to know the details of everything, how everything is going to work out, but you can base a single prayer directly on the promises of God because he is not a man that he should lie. He is not a man that he should lie. And I've been thinking about sometimes how prayer can be difficult. You know, Depending upon what you're facing in your life in that particular season, it literally can be difficult to form the words. She's then going to go on and talk about uh, just the, the kind of hellish year that she had, uh, the loss of her mom, her grandfather, her own lung surgery, uh, and then the pandemic and racial tensions and all of that on top of that. And she said, it's been one thing after the other. And sometimes when the load of life is really heavy and you feel like you just can't even come up with the words that you could say to pray, I'm telling you, base your prayers directly on the promises of God. Literally, just say exactly right back to him what he's already said to you. That what what better thing to pray than just to say, Lord, this is what you said. So I'm going to I'm going to go ahead uh, and pray completely and fully in alignment with what it is that you've already said. That's Priscilla Shire, a portion of her book up at Outreach Magazine. Ian, what do you think of that? When you don't know what to pray, uh, hang your prayers on the promises of God. Is that helpful for you? I think it's a good discipline. I think there's probably a couple of schools of thought, um, and maybe I, I would have even fit into this one 20 years ago, that sometimes it can feel inauthentic if I'm not praying something that just pops into my mind in any given moment. Um, but in the same way that like, I mean, if you were to like speak poetry to your wife, she would be like, look, you didn't even write that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it would, it would still be moving and be like, Oh wow, that was beautiful. And you feel that way toward me. Like there's still a chance for intimacy there. And I think that sometimes in some evangelical circles, unfortunately we've distanced ourselves from anything that, 
in any way looks like I didn't come up with this on my own. Like I can't not even scripture. I can't even Good. I can't even pray these prayers because I didn't write them and it needs to come from the heart. And like, yeah, that it coming from your heart and them being the promises of scripture are not mutually exclusive. And I think that can be a really, really helpful way. And somebody might be wondering, well, how do I even find out what those are? Like Google is your friend here. Literally just type, what are the promises of God in the Bible? And I guarantee within four seconds, you'll find someone who's organized them all. And I do, and I will add this, you know, when we, we've talked about this passage a lot where um, we read that like the spirit intercedes with groans too deep for words. That means even if, even if, and when you don't have the words and you can't even get to the promises, like, God's still there and he's still interceding on our behalf, even in the midst of like, I don't have anything. I just feel like I got the wind knocked out of me, but I I think that she's right on. I think that that can be a really helpful starting point and one that maybe depending on your background, you've not, uh, you've not really considered. Yeah. And by the way, when you say, if you, if you read poetry to your wife, I think you meant to say when you read poetry. Of course, obviously. I'm so sorry, please. Uh, Let's close this way. Let's close this way. And you just touched on this, but there might be somebody out there who's like, I've never prayed. I don't know how to pray, let alone what to pray. I literally don't know how to start. Uh, It's been forever since I've prayed. I always feel guilty praying because I never do it. Uh, Pastorally, what would you tell that person who's just like, okay, I'll give this whole prayer thing a try. How do you start? How do you begin to be becoming a praying person. Yeah, I would start with Latin or Greek for sure. So you don't don't want to brush up on some of those languages. Um, I mean, like I said at the beginning of the segment, it's at its core, it's a conversation. It's both Mm -hmm. speaking and listening. And I think, I think one of the most beautiful prayers that any of us could ever pray is Lord help. Right. Mm -hmm. Just that's all. That's all I got. And then to sit in that and to know that you're loved and, to even envision like Jesus sitting there with you in your grief or your pain or your confusion or your sorrow and just knowing that you're fully and completely seen and known and loved and resting in that, that's a prayer. Like our tears are mm. prayers too. Like they don't have to look or sound a certain way. You don't have to face a certain direction. They don't have to have a certain number of Shekinah glories in them for them to register like it is earbuds. Like there's, there's freedom in the way that, you know, a kid comes to his dad and and the dad is like, well, you didn't really use the right, the right verb tense for me to actually give you, you know, or to actually even listen to you or pay attention to you. Like God as father means that he's like, he's already closer than we realize anyway, and that we can approach him with confidence in that regard. And I think that's easy to forget for sure. But like in Christ Jesus, we don't have any, there's no condemnation. There's no, you know what I mean? There's no like fear of like, ah, I better clean up my acts before I go to God in prayer. He's like, he sees it all anyway. So you don't have to worry about any of that. Like that's yeah. the, the most free state that any of us could possibly be in. That's a good word, man. And hopefully that is a way we close the show that encourages you out there uh, to be people who pray and to even when you don't know what to say or don't know how to do it, hopefully uh, that is helpful. As Ian said, prayer is at its core, a conversation. Uh, and we would love to see you grow in that and just start down that path. Well, it's been a good show. Hopefully, uh, I declare it a good show. So whatever anyone else thinks is okay, <laughs> but it's been a fun show and we'll be with you tomorrow. Until then, we hope that you have a great night for Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs>